0: The Logbook.com's Retrogram podcast is brought to you by CBS All Access. Whether you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, the new Twilight Zone, or you're an old-school Next Generation fan who's ready for the return of Picard in his own series, there's probably something on CBS All Access that you'll like. They have old favorites like Twin Peaks and all of the previous Star Trek shows as well. Just visit the show page at the slash Retrogram and click one of the ads at the top for CBS All Access. Try it out for one week free. If you sign up, that helps keep the lights on at the Logbook.com's World Domination Headquarters, and you get to watch all those shows and hear more Retrogram. Retrogram, revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 7342. Saturday morning cartoons. Saturday night massacre. The week of October 14, 1973. Welcome to Retrogram, a podcast from thelogbook.com where we travel back in prime time to find out what sci-fi, spy-fi, superhero, horror, and fantasy shows were on the schedule for yesteryear. Sometimes we'll find out what was on during the week of a significant historical event. Sometimes we'll just pick out a week that looked like it had some fun shows in it. And you can help out. Go to the logbook.com slash retrogram and look for the link to the Retrogram timeline, a massive undertaking tracking numerous speculative fiction TV shows and sometimes TV movies from the beginning of 1970 through the end of 1990. You can nominate a week, tell us why you want it covered, and sit back and listen to the hilarity, or perhaps lack thereof, unfold. Basically, you're telling me what shows to watch, and I have to report back to you. Every couple of weeks, I'll be back with a new batch of old shows trying to find out what those shows had to say about us then and if they have anything to say to us now were they influenced by recent events or were they just a good distraction from them this week's shows fall into the latter category watergate had been ongoing for months a constitutional crisis slowly unfolding in real time but it doesn't seem that any of the stories in this week's retrogram concern themselves with corruption at the highest levels of the government If anything, the recently established, at least as of 1973, Earth Day seems to be much more of an influence on the stories that unfolded on TV during this week than the slow-boiling corruption scandal that was rocking Washington with each passing day. Still looking at Washington today, maybe the folks who were kids then should have watched these shows and learned a few things. The evening of Saturday, October twentieth, 1973 was unlike any other in American politics up to that point. It was the night that an American president, mired in a vast corruption scandal, did the unthinkable, and dismissed the special counsel investigating him. The fallout from this drama would continue to unfold for months, but that president would ultimately resign as more revelations made it seem inevitable that he would be impeached, convicted, and removed from office in disgrace. He resigned within a year. But that morning, well, that morning the world was ending at least twice. There were nukes going off. There was an attack of the 50-foot Spock, and, well, a bunch of kids were running everything. Let's start there. The Star Lost, Episode 5, Children of Methuselah, aired in Canada on CTV. In the United States, it was syndicated, though mostly wound up on NBC stations, and it aired on October 20th, 1973. The story so far. Devon is a curious young man in a simple Amish-like society called Cypress Corners, questioning some elements of his community's religious teachings, a crime that has gotten him banished at least once before. The community elders in the tradition of their simple agrarian society consult a computer to determine Devon's fate, and the computer responds by declaring Devon's betrothal to a young woman named Rachel null and void. She is instead to marry Garth, a young local blacksmith. On the run from his own neighbors, Devin escapes through a metal doorway and finds himself in an alien world of metal, where he too can ask questions of the computer. He learns that Cypress Corners is an artificial environment, just one of dozens of biospheres attached to Earthship Ark, a flying representative cross-section of Earth life and civilizations launched to preserve something of that doomed planet's history and life forms in the year 2285. But never mind the disaster that befell Earth and wiped it out. A disaster along the way killed the crew maintaining Earthship Ark, and it has gone off course and has been adrift for many hundreds of years, much longer than its trip was intended to be. No one aboard Earthship Ark knows how to fly it or change its course, and now the massive ship and every equally unaware member of every civilization preserved aboard it is on a collision course with a star, which could take place in weeks months, maybe years. You see, the ship's computer is a little bit addled and doesn't really know. It's counting on human intervention to save the day. Devon returns to Cypress Corners, discovering that his elders have pronounced him dead. He challenges the very foundations of their religion and escapes with Rachel into the corridors of the ship to prove to her that he's telling the truth. Garth pursues them, intent on rescuing Rachel and doing away with Devon, as his elders command, only to discover the truth for himself. Now the three refugees from Cypress Corners explore the other biospheres on Earthship Ark, hoping to find someone who might help them change the Ark's course before all of its societies and the last of the human race are destroyed. Children of Methuselah. Devon thinks he's found what he and his friends have been looking for. Earthship Ark has a backup bridge, and it might even be occupied by someone who can change the ship's course. But when they approach the door, the voice of the ship's computer begins warning them away because it's a restricted area. Garth jimmies the lock as best he can—take that advanced technology—and the door opens just enough for them to see a little girl wearing some kind of uniform. Rachel slips through the door and operates the control to open it fully. Devon and Garth enter and find more children wearing more uniforms. Oh, and massive debilitating headaches that bring the two men to their knees somehow caused by the children wearing uniforms. When Devon asks politely if he and his friends can see the bridge, he's assured that a course correction is already being plotted. Everything's under control. Under control of even more children wearing even more uniforms. And they'll introduce the three interlopers to Earthship Ark's captain when things are less busy. The captain greets Devon's party by informing them that they're under arrest and will be held for trial. And, oh, by the way, the captain must be in all of his mid-teens. As if things weren't bad enough, the kids who seem to be running the ship are unaware that there's a slight problem with the ship's course. While Devon, Rachel, and Garth are kept under guard, though, their guards are a bit more forthcoming. Their parents stayed behind on Earth when the Ark left, while they themselves were injected with an anti-aging serum by the ship's automated tutors. These kids are five hundred-plus years old. The trial doesn't go very well. When the children refuse to listen to Devon relating what he's learned since leaving Cypress Corners, Garth has an outburst in court, and he's then treated to a heaping helping of telekinetic pain and taken back to his cell. Devon is led back to the backup bridge, which the captain believes is Earthship Ark's main bridge. Devon is shown an astro-navigation plot with no obstacles in sight, no star for the Ark to collide with. Hmm? to the young captain this proves that devon is lying and he has devon locked up with garth again but not before devon notices a great big red switch master separation switch 3 hmm wonder what that's all about the captain decides that two men should be executed and rachel should remain to tend to the needs of the younger children rachel is shown to an area where the kids when they're off duty get to de-stress and play by plugging into computer headsets that interact directly with their brains. Rachel's got a better idea, introducing simple games like Hide and Seek and Blind Man's Buff to the younger kids. Though they don't understand the rules at first, they finally get it, but this is the kind of de-stressing and playing that their captain just isn't having. So we are going to imitate the primitives, are we? he demands, before insisting that Rachel, too, should be held under guard. Devon and Garth escape from their cell and find that Rachel's been making friends by giving her guards names instead of numbers. With the help of the newly named Sarah and David, it's off to the bridge again, where the kids finally seem to be responding to a collision alarm. But not for the star. Devon finally puts two and two together. This is a training bridge for simulated navigation and emergency exercises. These kids aren't in control of Earthship Ark. The captain refuses to accept this and wants the three primitive intruders thrown into the sonic separator. Which sounds pretty painful, whatever that happens to be. Hey, remember Master Separation Switch number three, the big red button? Yeah. Devon totally sneaks across the room and hits that bad boy. The captain believes this will eject the training bridge modules into space, separating it from Earthship Ark and its life support systems. But guess what? Even that's a simulation. And it convinces the kids to let Devon, Garth, and Rachel go to continue their search for the real backup bridge, and maybe some real crew members. But hey, Devon tells the captain, take some time to be a kid, because you are a kid. Let your crew be kids, because they're kids too. And Devon promises to return for the captain and his crew when the backup bridge is found, because the way their luck runs, even though they've been doing simulation exercises for 500 ish years, these kids may be the only ones who know how to fly the Ark for real when the time comes. So, a little bit about the show. The Star Lost was created by Harlan Ellison, and was promoted as using a revolutionary new optical effects technique called Magicam, which was developed by Douglas Trumbull, the special effects guru famous for 2001 A Space Odyssey and the very recently, then-recently released Silent Running. Magicam would integrate live actors in a blue-screen environment seamlessly into miniature sets, which sounded great on paper, but there was just one problem. The Canadian broadcaster CTV, which signed up to produce the show, opted instead to shoot on video. So it kind of looks like uh, quite a few British sci-fi shows from around the same time. So the blue-screen backdrops, they really have all of the... Verisimilitude of all the reality of early 70s TV weather reports. Harlan Ellison was displeased, to put it very mildly, with the bargain basement production values, and he disowned the show, which was then credited to his pseudonym that Ellison often used to signal to his fans that he had grown displeased with one of his projects, Cordwainer Bird. The show's science advisor, legendary author Ben Bova, was contractually locked down and wanted to leave, but couldn't. It's pretty screwed up when the originator of the show can leave his ball and go home, but the science advisor is left to go down with the sinking ship. In a lot of respects, so much sci-fi created primarily for the American market, especially TV, is now filmed in Canada because it's cheaper. The American dollar just travels further than Canadian dollar does. At least it did in 1973, and does so to a lesser extent in 2019. Although things in the world keep going the way they are, one wonders if that will continue to be the case, and what will happen to the prodigious Canadian output of TV sci-fi at that point. The Star Lost is effectively the beginning of made-in-Canada TV sci-fi for the American market. So all the shows you love, every flavor of Stargate, Lex... Star Trek Discovery, Dark Matter, Killjoys, Orphan Black, Jeremiah, Forever Night, The X-Files, The New Battlestar Galactica, Earth Final Conflict, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, Mutant X, The 4400, Jake 2.0, Smallville, Supergirl, The Flash, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow. I could go on for a couple more days. The road that those shows travel was paved in very low-resolution video by a doomed little Harlan Ellison show called The Star Lost. 20th Century Fox's TV arm handled distribution of The Star Lost in the U.S., which for the most part meant that um, The Star Lost was syndicated to NBC stations. Since sci-fi was still perceived as kid stuff at this time, or at least family hour viewing in the U.S., these stations would frequently program the show on Saturday mornings, after the network's Saturday morning cartoons, and before the network's live weekend sports programming or afternoon movies. As we explore future episodes of The Star Lost on Retrogram, we'll talk about why it was sometimes suitable and sometimes totally unsuitable for that time slot. This episode is pretty innocuous and centers around kids anyway, so it kind of sort of passes the Saturday morning smell test. Children of Methuselah was written by Jonah Royston and George Ghent from a story by Jonah Royston. Royston both wrote and guest starred in episodes of the 1970 series Police Surgeon, as well as an ABC After School special and a 1976 episode of the Swiss Family Robinson series. He also wrote the script for the 1975 movie Ilsa, She Wolf of the SS, which, spoiler alert, was not kid friendly. You have been warned. This episode of The Star Lost is the first writing credit that appears for Jonah Royston on IMDb. This episode was directed by Joseph L. Scanlon. The Star Lost was the first TV series where Joe Scanlon was a regular fixture. He directed six Star Lost episodes and went on to direct seven episodes of Land of the Lost. He also worked on What's Happening, The Littlest Hobo, Falcon Crest, and a whopping 22 episodes of Knot's Landing, and then started racking up more sci-fi credits four episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, including Skin of Evil, the one where they kill Tasha Yar, The Big Goodbye, which was the first really good holodeck episode, the super gory-for-TV-standards conspiracy, and the second season split-screen nightmare that was Times Squared, which is one where you have Picards from two different time zones interacting at length. He also directed episodes of Quantum Leap, War of the Worlds, the series, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, The New Outer Limits, Earth Final Conflict, and La Femme Nikita. So, let's analyze Children of Methuselah a bit. 70s TV, sci fi, and kids. Two great tastes that taste great together. Or so you'd think, given how many times the formula was attempted. The scene where Rachel is trying to introduce the younger kids to simple games like Blind Man's Buff is... It it gets weird. I get that she's under a lot of stress and has just learned that Devin and Garth are marked for death. But the kids failing to grasp Blind Man's Buff just seems like the wrong place for her to have an emotional breakdown. Devon and Garth dying? Fine. You don't get Blind Man's Buff? (laughs) I'm breaking down. What's even weirder is that we cut away for a quick scene with Rachel and the somewhat sympathetic little girl who she first met when they first entered this area of the ship. And then we go back to find the rest of the kids now totally get blind man's buff, much to the irritation of their captain. It may sound like I'm crapping all over the Star Lost, but there are things to love about this show. I'm going to buck conventional wisdom that says the show is a stinker, and I will put this on the table in front of you. The Star Lost has one of science fiction TV's all-time great premises, which was then totally deep-sixed by low-ball cheap execution. Harlan Ellison devised a really elegant format for his show. You're always on the ship looking for the show's holy grail, regaining control of the arc. But because of the element of the different biospheres, you can shoot in any location or any studio-built environment and still be on the ship. And the environments need not necessarily be futuristic. The first episode's environment was, you know, aside from the guts of the ship itself, we start out in this agrarian society. And this show uses the the bridge set from the first episode of the series, so obviously it was a bit of a money-saver. But... All of these environments, or even if you go on location, you're still on the ship. The different biospheres containing their different societies allow writers of later episodes to examine the foibles and follies of any Earth culture, any system of government, any religion. And Ellison, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Mr. Cordwainer Bird, leans heavily into criticizing fundamentalism and a lack of separation between church and state in the first episode. This episode kind of fluffs its execution, like so many other episodes of the series that has a great premise. The idea that a bunch of parentless kids have had their aging slowed down so they can spend a few hundred years training to be the custodians of a generational ship that will eventually meet a new crew? That's actually one of the better story ideas anyone had for the Star Lost. But somewhere between needing the story to sustain for 45 or so minutes... Having to explain that high-concept kernel of the story to the audience, and then having to explain that high-concept kernel of the story through child actors, well, it it loses something in the translation. The pacing is actually decent for 1973 sci-fi TV, but some of the scenes involving the kids kind of grind to a near halt. The kid playing the captain, unfortunately, is kind of the worst offender. He does pretty well with pompous, but it's a very stagey, flavor of pompous. Star Trek The Animated Series, Season 1, Episode 7, The Infinite Vulcan, aired October 20th on NBC. The story so far, the five-year mission of the Federation Starship Enterprise continues, with Captain James T. Kirk still in command, and Mr. Spock, Dr. McCoy, Scotty Uhura, and the rest of the crew, well, most of them, along for the ride. This time they have a few new crew members who would have been nearly impossible to show in live action. The Infinite Vulcan. A landing party consisting of Spock, Kirk, Bones, and Sulu beams down to the planet Phylos, a world that shows signs of intelligent life, and yet nobody comes out to greet them. While Sulu examines tiny plants that uproot themselves from the ground, walk around on their roots, and then replant themselves, the others explore an abandoned city whose power source is still active, possibly a self-defense system. A shout from Sulu outside brings his shipmates running, and Dr. McCoy finds that he's been poisoned by contact with one of the plants. Sulu has only a minute to live, but nothing McCoy has with him will save Sulu's life. Vaguely humanoid plants appear, much larger cousins of the moving plants, and one of them introduces itself as Agmar, offering an antidote to the poison that's killing Sulu. Over McCoy's objections, Agmar treats Sulu and revives him with no ill effects. Agmar's people also built the nearby city, but since they are pacifists who haven't always had good relations with animal-based humanoids in the past, they've been hiding and observing the Enterprise officers. Hey, there are flying plant-based lifeforms, too, and while those creatures restrain Kirk, McCoy, and Sulu, one of them snags Spock and whisks him away to see the Master. Spock's crewmates are released just in time to meet a giant towering humanoid. Dr. Stavos Coniclius V. He seems to be in charge here, and the Phylosians defer to him as their savior, since he both brought a humanoid plague that threatened to wipe out their species, and then wouldn't leave until he devised a cure for them. Now that Coniclius has Spock, he orders the other Enterprise officers to leave. Since their phasers don't work inside the city, they have no choice but to beam back to the ship. Where McCoy and Scotty prepare a more primitive weapon little something we call weed spray. When they return, they find Spock in Caniclius V's lab, where he is cloning a giant Spock, Spock II. But the cloning process is destructive. The original Spock from the Enterprise is dying. Caniclius believes creating a new master race of giant Spock clones is the key to keeping peace in the galaxy. But Coniclius himself and his clones are relics of the Eugenics Wars, and his most recent information on galactic history indicates that there's a constant threat of war between the Federation and the Klingons, the Romulans, and the Kazinti. Kirk has to convince him that the galaxy is presently at peace, even if it's sometimes a slightly uneasy peace. Shouldn't Coniclius turn his genetic engineering talents toward helping the Phylosians rebuild their species instead? After a mind meld between the original Spock and Spock II, the Enterprise's Spock is restored to health, and he and his shipmates are allowed to go on their way. The Infinite Vulcan was written by original Star Trek cast member Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov. Now, Walter was the lone holdout among the crew as far as voicing his old character, so Chekhov doesn't actually appear in the animated series. His place on the bridge was taken by the three-armed Lieutenant Erex. He went on to write one episode each of Land of the Lost and the Powers of Matthew Starr, both of which our shows will examine in future retrograms, and one episode of Family, which falls outside the scope of this genre podcast, the Sulu is stung by something called the Retlaw plant, which um, is Walter spelled backwards. Very nice, Walter. Nice uh, Hitchcock cameo there. Kirk and McCoy <laughs> spend the entire episode mispronouncing Caniculus's name. They pronounce it Caniculus. <laughs> I'm glad he wasn't irradiated, or else he might have wound up being a nuclear Caniculus. This is why you include pronouncers in the script, by the way. Caniculus was trying to create a master race and was involved in the eugenics wars, so this sounds like someone who probably bumped into Khan at some point. Now Caniculus seems more concerned with peacekeeping. Now he has peacekeeping with an army of giant clones, because why not? But uh, Khan wasn't interested in peacekeeping. He was obsessed with tyrannical rules, so who knows which side of the conflict these two parties were on. Still, it's really interesting piece of continuity to bring up in the animated show, of all places. There's one scene where I noticed there was a weird perspective on the bridge as Scotty and Uhura tried to contact the landing party. It, it looked like Uhura was propping her knees up on her workstation, why would anyone do that? I I kind of uh, boil that one down to a... <laughs> it's just a misfire of perspective, a misdraw in the art department. Now, it's tempting sometimes to say that kids' TV at this point in time was smarter than kids' TV now. But... That's not something I'm going to claim because kids now growing up, you know, I know because I'm a father, I have, uh, you know, one, one kid who is screaming toward junior high school at a rate with which I'm just barely comprehending, let alone comfortable. And I have a toddler still, basically. He was about to, uh, we're looking at kindergarten for him and Kids today have to deal with different things growing up than kids my age did. Still, I listened to this line, and it says something to the vocabulary that was expected to be known by the audience of this show. Uh, Something that Spock says to Captain Kirk, When you were not being bellicose, there appears to be no end to your arsenal of formidable talents. That's, uh, that's quite a line <laughs> for a kids' show. <laughs> The Six Million Dollar Man, movie number two, Wine, Women, and War, aired on the evening of Saturday, October 20th on ABC. So if there's a candidate for any of the shows being interrupted by a news bulletin due to the day's events, this would probably be the top candidate. The story so far. Meet Steve Austin, test pilot turned astronaut turned moonwalker turned test pilot until he barely survived the crash of an experimental plane, losing an eye, one arm, and both legs in the fiery crash. These missing organs and limbs have been replaced with state-of-the-art nuclear-powered bionic prosthetics. His new eye can see further, his new legs can run faster, his arm can lift more and hit harder. And it's not a cheap procedure. Price tag? Well, guess. It's about six million bucks. There's another price tag attached, too. In exchange for keeping him alive and maintaining his bionic implants, Austin now works for a top-secret agency known only as OSI, the Office of Scientific Intelligence, which will assign him to hazardous duty in international hotspots too dangerous for your average flesh-and-blood secret agent. Oscar Goldman, Austin's new boss, is constantly worried about the well-being of his new top agent, because sometimes even Steve Austin's new assignments push the limits, of what his bionically enhanced body can do. Wine, women, and war. On the Egyptian coast, the great and the good are absolutely nowhere to be found. Instead, Steve Austin has infiltrated a glitzy soiree thrown by a filthy rich arms dealer for a Central American tyrant who he hopes will be his new top client. Austin slips out to a balcony to send a Morse code signal to a waiting submarine, indicating that this is the place and this is the time the time that all of the parties involved are present. Austin then strips down to swimming gear, jumping off the balcony into the bay, swimming over to and boarding a yacht where he expects to find a copy of the arms dealer's catalog of wares. Except, oops, it's not there, and Austin's been found out. The guards on the yacht open fire, and Austin leaps back into the water, dodging depth charges and bullets as he fights his way back to the submarine. He survives, but not without severe damage to his bionic limbs, But, never fear, his injuries are patched up under the care of Dr. Rudy Wells, the expert in bionics and cybernetics who patched Austin up after his plane crash. Oscar has another mission for Austin, but Steve lays down the law. He's had enough of the secret agent thing for now. An old pilot buddy of Austin's drops by with an offer to bust Steve out of his top-security hospital wing and whisk him away for a much-needed vacation. One which Austin doesn't yet know is actually the site of his next assignment, the one that Oscar wanted him to go on. Steve's buddy is even arranged for a very attractive sidekick when he gets there, though Steve regards her as something of a distraction, although a pleasant one. Hey, did Steve Austin just spot his old buddy Alexei, an engineer in the Soviet space program on the golf course? Sure he did. And say, who's that with him? Oh, whoops, it's the arms dealer whose shindig Austin deep-sixed. At the beginning of the movie, Alexei sends a message. He wants to meet with Steve alone. Alexei is certain that Austin is here on business, and that business puts Alexei in danger. So, he shoots Steve Austin at point-blank range. End of series. Okay, just kidding. He actually got shot with a tranquilizer dart and is held on a boat offshore as a guest of the Soviet Union. Alexei fixes Steve up with another very attractive sidekick, one with a Russian accent, Although Austin isn't taking the bait, instead he's overpowering the guards and her and taking his leave, swimming back to shore and boiling mad because he's figured out that he's been duped into another OSI operation rather than a vacation. In a vast underground space that's some kind of cross between a showroom floor and a missile silo, Austin lurks in the shadows and watches his old friends from the Soviet Union meet with that shady arms dealer again. It seems that he deals in both American and Soviet-made nuclear weapons, both stolen from sunken nuclear submarines. And more nuclear submarines from both countries will be attacked and ransacked soon, starting with an American sub. Oh, and that's the business Alexei is here on, trying to figure out where the Soviet nukes have been hidden after they've been stolen. Oh, and the arms dealer has figured that out, and kills Alexei by demonstrating a deadly nerve gas that he'll use to get his hands on more American Trident missiles. Alexei is dead, but Austin manages to save the life of Alexei's female companion, and hotwires some of the silo controls. The next time someone opens the silo door for the Trident missile, the missile will actually be armed and fired sideways through the opposite wall of the silo. Austin manages to get Alexei's lady friend to safety by picking her up, carrying her, and running as fast as his bionic legs can carry him. And they manage to reach the shelter of a small hill just in time to see an atomic mushroom cloud rising from the smoking crater where the missile showroom used to be. End of movie. No, really, that that, that is the end of the movie this time. It's a mushroom cloud, and apparently, you know, Steve and this Russian lady are just fine because, um, you know, bionic? hey, dig that crazy new theme song by Dusty Springfield. I wonder if the show would have fared as well as it did later as a series if they had kept that as the open. Now, at one point, when uh, Steve Austin figures out that he's been duped into doing the spy thing anyway, uh, he tells Oscar Goldman on the phone, I'll kick your department so hard you'll need Skylab to get it down. Well, that doesn't date this show at all. (laughs) Asks, Ask any kid born since 1980 what the heck Skylab was. So, um, that hasn't aged well. Now, in the Six Million Dollar Man mythos, there are some interesting retcons in this movie that change everything from this point forward. Darren McGavin's Oliver Spencer from the original pilot movie is gone, replaced by the much more familiar face of Richard Anderson as Oscar Goldman. Now, Anderson would stay with the Bionic franchise <laughs> for lack of a for lack of a better way to refer to the combined total of both the Six Million Dollar man and the Bionic Woman as Oscar Goldman, even though they started out on the same network, the two shows eventually wound up on different networks, and so Richard Anderson may be the only actor ever to play the same character on shows on competing networks. Dr. Rudy Wells has also been recast as he is wont to do replacing Martin Balsam from the pilot movie with Alan Oppenheimer here. Now, there is a major story retcon. There aren't just casting changes. Here's a kind of major change to the story. The pilot movie introduced us to a cocky, irreverent civilian test pilot, Steve Austin, kind of in the same mold as civilian test pilot Neil Armstrong. But from this movie onward, all of a sudden he's a retired Air Force colonel So while he might show a rebellious streak every so often, like he does in Wine, Women, and War, Austin is now subject to the chain of command, and he can't just quit the spy biz. He's just following orders. There are some respects, such as Soviet nukes sliding into the black market after the fall of the Soviet Union, not necessarily during the Cold War as shown in this movie. There are things here that are kind of ahead of their time. There are also lots of other areas where the movie isn't ahead of its time. Very nearly every female character in this thing is completely disposable. And there's also um, a very famous character actor, Lee Berger. Very famous at the time. Um, Those of you who are fans of the original Star Trek, you remember the one with Abraham Lincoln? That was Lee Berger. Uh, he shows up here, and he is just this side of being in blackface so yeah more things that haven't aged well now things that things that are safe to laugh at i i kind of like the idea of a a catalog an arms dealer's catalog with nukes it's the 1973 jc penny atomic wish book hey i hear there's a steve austin action figure on page 281 Compared to some later Six Million Dollar Man stories, this one is barely even skin deep. It really doesn't have much of anything to say. It's just kind of a very jingoistic approach to a standard-issue Cold War spy thriller. (laughs) Episode 6, The View of a Dead Planet. Moonbase 3 aired on BBC One. It's the only show that didn't air on Saturday, October 20th itself. It actually aired on Sunday, October 14th. The story so far... Moonbase-3, operated by the UK and Europe, is one of many permanent outposts on the Moon, with Moonbases 1, 2, and 4, respectively operated by the United States, Russia, and China. But compared to those superpowers, Moonbase-3 seems permanently underfunded and understaffed, a pressure cooker of cooped-up people, outdated equipment, trying to stay alive in a hostile environment to accomplish their scientific goals. Moonbase 3's new administrator, David Calder, was appointed to take over after his predecessor was killed in a shuttle disaster caused by a suicidal space pilot. Calder's second-in-command, Frenchman Michel Lebrun, was angling for the administrator job himself, and so, therefore, he's a constant critic of Calder's style of command, while the outpost psychologist, Dr. Helen Smith, tries her best to counsel Calder and everyone else in Moonbase 3. They're just trying to survive and do science. The cold, harsh realities of life on the moon and budget cuts courtesy of Earthbound pencil pushers are working against them. View of a Dead Planet It's Bastille Day 2003. You didn't know we had moon bases in 2003? Jeez, what's up with that? Life is good aboard Moon Base 3, finally, which, you know, these folks deserve it since this is their last episode. Sorry, kind of jumped to the end there. Astronaut scientist Tom Hill enjoys a game of chess via video mail with his counterpart at Russia's Moonbase 2. Moonbase 3's psychological counselor Helen Smith is for once shutting out the world with her headphones, which are huge and bulky just like you'd expect in the future. Deputy Administrator Michel Lebrun is engaging in his favorite pastime, complaining about having to make ready for a distinguished guest. Sir Benjamin Dice, a renowned Nobel Prize-winning but elderly scientist, Has arrived to observe from the moon the effects of Project Arctic Sun, a scientific endeavor of which he was once a founding member, but he has now become a vehement vocal opponent of his own work. Arctic Sun is an attempt to create more habitable space on the overpopulated Earth by detonating a thermonuclear device over Antarctica, warming the continent enough for human colonization on a large scale. But Sir Benjamin has since realized what a foolhardy idea this is, because, and quick reminder folks, this was written and shot and aired in 1973, melting the Antarctic ice will cause a catastrophic rise in sea levels around the world, Hmm. and the proximity of the detonation to the Earth's magnetic pole might lead to the destruction of the planet's magnetic field, erasing Earth's only defense from the radiation of its own sun. So, hey, thanks for having me as a visitor on your moon base. Everyone and everything you know on Earth is going to die. No biggie. Where you folks keep the booze? He's up for a game of Yahtzee? Actually, scratch that. Sir Benjamin is all business with this forecast of doom and gloom. But is he right? Nah, he's a crazy old man, isn't he? Sure he is. Oh, hey, why has uh, Contact suddenly been lost with Earth? No biggie, right? Oh, and why is Earth's atmosphere suddenly shrouded in a completely opaque brown haze? Mmm, probably nothing. In fact, Tom's chess opponent on Moonbase, 2 hasn't noticed anything wrong. Oh, oh, wait just a minute. Yeah, they have. None of the Moonbases have contact with Earth now. And whatever the problem with Earth is, it's on the ground. The satellites that would normally be relaying signals from Earth are working fine. They just have nothing from Earth to relay. The longer Moonbase-3 goes without communication from Earth, the more frayed nerves become among the crew. And Calder realizes there's a whole new problem. Like all of the Moonbases on the Moon, moon Moonbase-3 depends on Earth to resupply the base with consumables, food, water, oxygen, that sort of thing. And if life on Earth has ceased to exist, the occupants of Moonbase-3 have weeks to live. If they suddenly go to tight rationing, mere days to live if they continue consuming these resources as usual. Privately, Calder and Tom Hill discuss gradually introducing carbon monoxide into the station's confined atmosphere, mercifully putting everyone in Moonbase 3 gently to a very final sleep. Michel Lebrun intuits this plan on his own, gets drunk, and goes to Calder's quarters to confront him. And then he starts threatening to commit suicide very publicly to protest Calder's plan. Italian crew member Bruno goes to Helen's quarters, already drunk, and tries to have sex with her whether she wants to or not. She has to call Calder for help. The next morning the crew is still shaken by some of their comrades' actions. Tom proposes an audacious plan to Calder. There's one last shuttle that can return to Earth, and someone should make the trip to get the ground truth of what's happened on the planet. It may be a one-way trip, so Calder asks for a volunteer, but excludes Tom from flying the mission because his expertise is needed on the base. Bruno volunteers, perhaps to atone for his actions, but then chickens out, leaving Michel LeBrun to fly the shuttle. With time running out until the deadline Calder has set to gas his own crew as a mercy-killing, signals from Earth suddenly return. Sorry, the whole thing was just an unexpected side effect of some kind of ionization in the upper atmosphere. So, all life on Earth hasn't been wiped out. But they still have to deal with some serious coastal flooding, but that's okay, isn't it? Sure it is, because guess what? End of episode, end of series. Moonbase 3 came about when BBC bosses asked Terence Dix and Barry Letts, the then script editor and producer of John Pertwee-era Doctor Who, effectively the showrunners of the third Doctor's tenure, if they would like to do an original series of their own to air during Doctor Who's off-season. Moonbase 3 was the result, though both Dix and Letts have said that there are things that they would change about the show if they were to do it again, not the least of which is the show's very grim tone. Although, to be fair, that seems to be present in a great many science fiction series of the very early 1970s. Moonbase 3 was mounted as an international co-production produced by the BBC, with financial backing from ABC and 20th Century Fox on the American end of things. But it didn't make a splash in the ratings on either side of the Atlantic. It was a pretty expensive show as well, with a special Moonscape set built at Ealing Film Studios left standing for the entire production of the series, The only way a freshman series could have gotten that kind of resource would have been if it was created by the then-showrunners of Doctor Who, which was wildly successful at the time. Ironically, the fact that the series was shown in America is the only reason it still exists today. As with many BBC series made in the 1960s and early 70s, including many a classic episode of Doctor Who, Moonbase 3 was purged from the BBC tape archives and was only recoverable by way of the American Master Tapes, which were found much later in the 20th century Fox vaults, complete copies of the whole show. And this meant that the whole show could finally be released on DVD early in the 21st century, which was its first home video release of any kind. The discovery of the tapes in America prompted Moonbase's three script editor Terrence Dix to blurt out oh sh-, when he was told about the find and he was probably just remembering that this episode would be one of the tapes that was found Moonbase three had a short run lasting only a single season of six episodes after which many of its set pieces and even some of its cast members began migrating and showing up in episodes of Doctor Who yet to come This episode was written by Arden Winch, a prolific British TV writer from the 1960s through the 1980s, who died in 1991. His early credits included the ITV Play of the Week and 30-Minute Theatre, although a lot of his later work was in some pretty dark corners of the TV schedule. The World War II prison-escape drama Kulditz, the dystopian series 1990 which was produced in 1977, starred Edward Woodward, and was literally promoted as 1984 plus 6. Other shows with scripts written by Arden Winch included Secret Army, Scorpion with a K, and Cold Warrior. The episode was directed by Christopher Barry. Now, Barry was kind of a legend as far as directing British sci-fi TV dramas. He directed three episodes total of Moonbase 3, which means he directed half the series. Now, this was in addition to... You know, both before and after Moonbase 3, over 40 25-minute episodes of Doctor Who, including the very first Dalek story, the very first story with a new Doctor, meaning Patrick Troughton's first serial, Tom Baker's first full story as the Doctor, and the all-time classic stories The Demons and The Brain of Morbius, finally rounding out his frequent flyer miles in the TARDIS with the less-than-classic 1979 story The Creature from the Pit. He directed the first four Doctors in various adventures over 16 years. He also directed several episodes of All Creatures Great and Small, so he also got to work with Peter Davison, before Peter was the Doctor. He also directed The Tripods and returned to the Doctor Who universe, kinda sorta, in 1995 to direct the straight-to-video production Downtime. Christopher Barry died in 2012. Now, you know who else put in some time on the TARDIS? Guest star Michael Goff, who was the celestial toy maker in the four-part story of the same name in 1966 on Doctor Who, facing off against William Hartnell as the first Doctor. Four Doctors later, Goff returned as Counselor Heddon, a deeply misguided Time Lord, who was very nearly the end of the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, in the 1983 season opener, Arc of Infinity. Oh, but he's done so much more than that. Michael Goff was Alfred the butler to every live-action 1990s Batman. The cowl may have been worn by Michael Keaton, George Clooney, and Val Kilmer, but Alfred was one of the few constants of Batman's Tim Burton era, only half of which was directed by Tim Burton. Long before that, Goff played the role of Dr. Armstrong, creator of the Cybernauts in the Avengers. Now we're talking about Steed and Mrs. Peel Avengers, not Iron Man and Captain America Avengers, just for the record. Through the 1960s and 70s, he amassed a huge list of guest-starring credits on British TV, including, to name just a few, called it's Microbes and Men, *Blake Seven, Brideshead Revisited, The Citadel, and The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, with movie roles in not only the 1990s quartet of Batman movies, but also The Serpent and the Rainbow, The Age of Innocence, Nostradamus, Sleepy Hollow, and he did voice work for Tim Burton in Corpse Bride and 2010's Alice in Wonderland. Michael Goff died in 2011. Now, it's interesting to note that he was 57 at the time that this episode of Moonbase 3 was filmed, but his character is this eccentric 80-year-old scientist. So he tries to play the part, he tries to play it with a visibly stooped posture, but other than that, he really doesn't seem to be anything remotely like 80 years old. A recurring guest star on Moonbase 3 who uh, gets some of the most disturbing scenes in this episode is Garrick Hagan. Garrick Hagan is another Doctor Who veteran, appearing opposite John Pertwee's Doctor as the main guest star in the 1972 six-part story The Mutants, returning to the series in 2012 for a smaller role in the Matt Smith episode A Town Called Mercy. He also had a role, though a less prominent one, in Tim Burton's 1989 Batman movie but chances are if you're listening to this podcast and you're a science fiction fan, you already know Garrick Hagon as Big's Darklighter from the original Star Wars. Garrick had appeared twice already as Moonbase 3's resident vaguely Italian crew member Bruno Ponti, and yet in this episode he is suddenly Bruno Bertoli. So this episode holy crap, what a morbid episode. It reminded me of something that I had seen before, but wasn't produced until much later. If you are a Star Trek The Next Generation fan, you might remember the early second season episode where Silence has Lease, where Picard decides he will set the Enterprise to self-destruct rather than allowing half the crew picked at random to be used as lab rats in experiments run by an alien entity that seems to regard humans as, you know, mere microbes. The whole scene where Picard sits with illusionary versions of Data and Troy trying to decide how much time to give his crew to make peace with their fate kind of comes to mind here. Except that this being early 70s British TV, we've got to have a lot more stagey angst, and, you know, the whole carbon monoxide thing, that's really kind of uncomfortably close to telling certain impressionable members of the audience how to kill themselves. Now, that scene... Yeah, the attempted sexual assault scene is kind of soft-pedaled compared to how it would be done today, I'm sure, but that does not make it any less disturbing. I generally try to find the positives about anything that I watch, but it's very hard to do. This scene did not need to exist. It did not need to be here or in any other episode of Moonbase 3. It was already clear from the previous scene, with Michel Lebrun confronting Calder in his quarters. Discipline is rapidly breaking down aboard the moon base. Got that? Thank you. Got it. That element of the plot is crystal clear without throwing a rape attempt into the mix. It's just as well that this is the last episode of the series, because at this point I am... I have a very vested interest in never seeing some of these characters again. And, you know, there are other problems with this episode. Uh, Sir Benjamin Dice is given this gem of a line, I've always doubted if women have any useful place in science. Now, Helen very professionally throws that back in his face, but still, wow. 2003? Yeah, I know. It's it's still a problem in 2019, but... There were better episodes of Moonbase 3 than this, but let's just say don't start with this episode, because the best was most assuredly not saved for last. Now, we've got a missing show. It's Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, Episode 8, Unseen Alibi, which aired on the evening of October 20th on ITV in the UK. Now... Just in case you're not uh, familiar with this one, Orson Welles' Great Mysteries is a fun little anthology show with top flight actors and a really, (laughs) it's kind of unintentionally funny opening title sequence with music by John Barry of the James Bond, the early James Bond films and the Black Hole, no less than John Barry. The opening titles are heavily posterized, blue tinted film footage of Orson Welles' lumbering around in this gigantic cloak. I mean, it kind of kind of looks like, I hate to say this, kind of looks like a big fat kid walking around with a blanket, pretending to be a superhero. And the whole time he's smoking his cigar. The whole time. Because, you know, that's what Orson was famous for. And, and even in the introductory monologue for every episode that he did, which these were all reportedly shot all in a single night on film, The cigar is always front and center in his monologues. Really, I think Orson Welles took this gig so someone could, you know, someone would pay him to shuffle around and smoke cigars, which were probably a line item in the production budget. As unintentionally funny as these Orson Welles introductions are for each episode, each one then segues into a short adaptation of a story by the likes of O. Henry and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie, even Charles Dickens, and You'd have visiting one-off guest stars, uh, really high-caliber performers, Peter Cushing, Eddie Albert, Joan Collins, Christopher Lee, Donald Pleasance, Dean Stockwell, Victor Buono, Patrick McNeese, Susanna York, Jane Seymour, Michael Gambon, Anthony Ainley, Colin Baker. And, I mean, don't even worry about this being Colin Baker before Doctor Who. This was Colin Baker before the brothers. This is extremely young Colin Baker. And those... People don't all necessarily show up in the same episode, by the way. That's just kind of across the entire series. Now, having talked this show up, here's the sad part. The episode that aired this week in 1973 was not included on Volume 1 of Network DVD's collection of episodes, so I can't really offer any informed criticism here. It is due to be released by Network at a later date, so let's, um, you know, let's kind of dog-ear the page here and mark this spot, and maybe we can come back and cover this episode of Orson wells Great Mysteries in a future retrogram. <laughs> Super Friends, Season 1, Episode 7, Too Hot to Handle, aired the morning of Saturday, October 20th on ABC. So this is what was on while Star Trek the Animated Series was on on NBC. The story so far. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman. You think they just hang out at the Batcave or the Fortress of Solitude or Steve Trevor's office all the time? Nope. Nope. These founding members of the Justice League of America hang out at the Hall of Justice, waiting for the Trouble Alert to ring, and when they swing into action, well, they have some superheroes in training tagging along, and usually getting into trouble on their own, namely Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Too hot to handle. It's so hot in Gotham City, the cars stuck in traffic are overheating. Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog are on their way to the Gotham Museum, but uh uh-oh... The museum is being overrun by enormous vines, which threaten to destroy the building. Since Gotham City is Batman's turf, he and Robin respond to the emergency, very quickly finding that when they grab the vines and pull, the vines grab them and pull back. Batman decides to start tying the vines into a knot, and lo and behold, the vines pull against each other until they detach from the museum and tie themselves into something not unlike a giant green ball of yarn. But, as Glenn Fry won't sing for another twelve years, the heat is on, still. Wax figures of the superheroes are melting in the Hall of Justice. And, hey, what's the troubler warning everyone about now? Farmland is turning into deserts. Glaciers are melting, flooding an entire island. Good thing Aquaman's around to convince sea life to circle the island, and just sit there and soak it up like a bunch of sandbags. And finally, the reason for the global heat wave is discovered. Professor Von Noelot at the Gotham Observatory says Earth's orbit around the sun is decaying, moving it closer to the sun and heating up the entire planet. The professor devises a plan to have the flash run rings around the Earth with a huge amount of copper wire to generate a magnetic force to push Earth away from the sun and back toward its natural orbit which somehow works for a little bit, and then the earth starts falling back toward the sun. But there's another discovery. Wendy and Marvin find that someone dressed for the dead of winter can be seen in photos of many of the sites of the worst heat-related calamities. They find him driving an old fire engine and stow away in a compartment to follow him, only to find themselves airborne when the fire engine transforms into a rocket. They emerge on a volcanic island at the underground lair of an alien called Kobar. He's from a much warmer planet than Earth, which began cooling off rapidly when a permanent cloud of pollution began blocking out their sun. Their plan? Move Earth and make it warm enough for their species to colonize. Once he arrives at Kobar's island headquarters, Superman has an even better idea. Forge volcanic ash into a glass bubble to transport Aquaman, Flash, Wendy, and Marvin to Kobar's planet to clean it up for good, getting rid of the pollution and the trash. As Superman brings his friends back to Earth in the glass bubble, the Flash and Aquaman ponder that they each have a responsibility to preserve the planet that is humankind's only home. The End. Okay, now, (laughs) before we go any further, let's talk about the wax figures of the members of the Justice League. Who are these wax figures for? Is the public invited to the Hall of Justice? Are there tours at, like, two and four? Where do I sign up for this? Why does Superman start punching chunks of ice off of larger glaciers when he's just deflected several chunks that cleaved off and threatened an Eskimo village? He catches these and throws them into the sea. Why doesn't he give those to Wonder Woman to take to the, the drought land to serve as a source of water? It's like, Superman, come on. The glaciers are melting already. Don't make things even worse. Early in the episode, Wendy says Marvin needs to spend more time on his homework. I don't think Marvin's even listening in class because later on he looks at a steaming volcano on the secret volcanic island headquarters and he says, I hope it's not active. Um, you want to tell him or should I? Let me shorten this story quite a bit for you. Kobar's fire engine transformer rocket is spotted by NORAD, and the Air Force forces him down, and the whole evil scheme goes down in flames a lot sooner. Here's the thing. NORAD wasn't called NORAD until 1981, but it had been in existence for 15 years at the time that this show aired. And there's also a possible plot complication that they missed the ball on. It's really convenient that the sun around which Kobar's planet orbits is more or less identical to Earth's sun, because that means he still has superpowers on Kobar's planet. If it was more like the giant red star orbited by Krypton, boy, wouldn't that have thrown a spanner into the works, story-wise. After all, Superman only has the powers that he has on Earth, because Earth's sun is a yellow star instead of a red one. But I'm not sure if super friends ever dived into the whole Kryptonian backstory there so maybe best not to even think about it. That really kind of uh, works against uh, you know, as a story element Superman being capable of interstellar travel. You know, you go past the wrong star, oh, I'm not feeling so good Try really hard not to think too hard about the space travel here because oversimplified doesn't really begin to cover it Again, we have Superman uh, pushing this glass bubble along through interstellar space. All that really tells me is they urgently need to establish an upper limit to Superman's powers. Uh, Secondly, do you know what that glass bubble is missing? A life support system of any kind? Maybe an entry hatch? Like I said, try not to think about it too much. The Flash has an interesting line here. We humans are the only creatures who can upset the balance of nature. This is in a cartoon in 1973. What has happened to we humans that in 2019, there are people who spend their entire adult lives railing against the very simple and obvious lesson of a cartoon for children from 1973? Although, on further thought, I may be giving the show too much credit. We see Superman literally blowing the pollution from Kobar's planet into space, Aquaman cleaning up trash from its bodies of water, and the flash causing tornadoes to scoop up trash from the ground. Also, Superman can hurl all of this trash into the local sun. But they're addressing the symptoms and not the root problems. Will Kobar convince his people to make widespread changes to their energy industry, which looks an awful lot like it's burning coal? Will Kobar's people adopt solar power, hydroelectric, nuclear? Or are they going to be trying to hijack Earth again here in a few decades once they've screwed up their planet again? There's something that comes to mind as the old adage about teaching the man to fish. Still, it's, uh, it's a huge head start compared to the science of Moonbase 3 this same week, which was, you know, oh, hey, we nearly destroyed the world by thawing out Antarctica. Oh, hey, my bad. It's Okay. But despite some of the episode's wild simplifications, one thing is clear. We knew in 1973 that pollution was damaging our earthly ecosphere. The scientific evidence has only accumulated and just snowballed in favor of this observation since then. Why are the super friends in 1973 smarter than politicians in 2019? I need my folks in governance to be smarter than cartoon characters but they're not. Do we need to show them this cartoon? Do we need to show them some super friends? Or are we just sitting around numbly waiting for the next Saturday Night Massacre in the middle of the next Watergate? What's actually changed? (laughs) So here we are at the end of the show, where to my amazement, I'm looking back on the week of October 14th, 1973, the sci-fi and other genre shows that were on, and I have to put my hand on my heart and unironically tell you that Super Friends was probably the most relevant thing on that week, and it seems to emerge as the piece of televised speculative fiction from that week that has the most to say about the future. That's really not the result I was expecting going into this. Because here's the thing. Moonbase 3 was created by the showrunners that permanently embedded social and political commentary into the DNA of Doctor Who. There had been social commentary in the black and white days of Doctor Who but under Barry Letts and Terence Dicks, the show suddenly acquired, you know, very much a an ecological justice that was addressed in many episodes during the Third Doctor's tenure. The Star Lost was created by no less a talent than Harlan Ellison himself, but the episode of Moonbase 3 this week wasn't written by Barry Letts or Terrence Dicks, and technically no episodes of The Star Lost were written by Harlan Ellison. Gordwayner Bird, yes, but not Harlan, and this wasn't one of those. With its on-the-nose ecological commentary this week's episode of Super Friends, which is to say... The October 20th, 1973 episode of Super Friends, not this week as you're listening to it, emerges as the one with staying power. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's still as cheesy as it can be, and it seems like a very early draft compared to today's environmental and ecological messaging. But the understanding was there in 1973, and evidently we still need it pitched at this very simple, cartoonish level for the folks in the back of the room to get it. They're still not getting it. So why pick this particular historical event, this particular week from history, to build a show around? Oh, no real reason. Just one of those stray thoughts that went through my head. Because, you know, those same folks in the back of the room, they're still not getting it. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. freemusicarchive.org is also home to lots of other great royalty-free music. Additional music in this episode was created by DZ, Samarite, and Andrew Howes, also licensed under Creative Commons. A huge thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters, Kevin Bunch, Darwin Hannon, Mark McDonald, and Javier Ost. Want to help them help me keep the site and its various podcasts and videocasts alive? Pitch a few pennies, or p- pitch a lot of pennies, into the hat at patreon.com slash thelogbook. You can also support the site by buying T-shirts and other goodies from our store at redbubble.com slash people slash thelogbook or by ordering, well, just about anything through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com store from places like Amazon and eBay. Retrogram has been a production of the logbook.com. Wine, Women and War on the Egyptian coast, the great and the good are nowhere to be found. Instead, Austin has infiltrated a glitzy soiree thrown by... Uh, th-lone, thlone. Let's just start again. A game of Thrones.